Good morning. Happy New Year. Great to be back with you all. Please pray with me. Father, your will be done. Son, your gospel be preached and heard. Holy Spirit, your help to live out both. In your name, amen. The fighting in Italy in January of 1944 was brutal. Southern Italy was controlled by the Allies. Northern Italy was controlled by the Germans. And they had basically fought to a stalemate along what became known as the Winter Line. Allies could not push north. Germans could not push south. So Allied commanders came up with a pretty clever plan to try to unlock the stalemate. These commanders, incidentally, led by our own Mark Clark, whose name is on the Mark Clark Expressway, eventual president of Citadel. Mark Clark came up with a plan. They were going to sail a group of Allied troops from the south, west into the Mediterranean, north of the winter line, north of the German front line, and land at a place called Anzio, Italy. This would do two things. It would simultaneously cut off all the supply lines from Rome going down to the German front lines, and it would also force the Germans to fight in two directions at one time. It was a bold plan, daring plan, and it relied on both the element of surprise and it relied on the swiftness of the Allied troops moving from the beach at Anzio to the mountains. There was a problem with Anzio. Anzio is just like Charleston. It is a bunch of reclaimed marshland. And in 1944, it was as yet undeveloped. So where the Allies landed, it was this huge plain, 15 miles wide, 10 miles deep. So the Allies had to land, get across the marsh to the mountains. Mark Clark had one problem. He had a commander, uh, a subordinate of his who was in charge of the landing, who did not believe in the plan. He was worried that the amount of troops being sent from the south north of the German front lines were not enough. He is a little bit worried that unless he takes all of the forces at once, he will be quickly overtaken by the Germans. So he delays. He wants to consolidate all of his strength. He doesn't move troops into the mountains quickly enough. This gives the Germans time to, one, find out what's going on, and two, very calmly, deliberately reorient their artillery toward the marsh at Anzio. What began was a horrific bombardment that lasted eight weeks. The Allies were pinned on this marsh, day in, day out, shelled by German artillery. Axis Sally. The German radio propaganda machine bragged that Anzio was the largest self-supporting POW camp in the world. And at one point, in a lull in the horror and the terror, a mess sergeant was heard and recorded to have called out in prayer, God, help us, and you come yourself. Don't send Jesus. This is no place for children. 
Now, that prayer does not just misunderstand the nature of Jesus as a child, even as a child, right? But it also misunderstands Jesus' cosmic sovereignty. He is certainly able to help at Anzio, but he is also, if Zechariah in our passage this morning is to be believed, orchestrating Anzio. Jesus is setting up Anzio. He's the one in charge of Anzio. As wrong as the prayer is, and we'll critique it here with our passage in just a minute, I do want us to be honest with ourselves about how often we pray the exact same thing. Most of the time it's for different reasons and in different contexts. I realize that rather than an audible prayer to the Father, don't send Jesus, it's usually more a sentiment or an attitude or a heart longing. But I'd be willing to bet that many of us have thought it. Don't send Jesus yet. I want to accomplish this or that. Don't send Jesus. I want to get married. I want to have kids. Don't send Jesus yet. I want to have more kids. I want a bigger house on the marsh in Italy. Mine, if I'm going to be honest, has been, don't send Jesus. I want to see my daughter experience or do certain things, right? But whether we are getting shelled at Anzio or living a comfortable life in a beautiful place like this, Zechariah shows us that our true prayer should actually be the exact opposite. Our true prayer should be an incessant, repeated, nonstop call for the next Advent or arrival, right? That's what Advent means. When we celebrate the Advent at Christmas, we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. Our prayer should be send Jesus in the next arrival. Send the Messiah again. Just celebrated Christmas. And that's only phase one of God's mission. Uh, if you go back later on and read Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, the imagery there is all about the first arrival. What will happen when the shepherd comes? What will happen to the sheep when the shepherd is struck? What will happen to the sheep when the shepherd rises? But our chapter this morning goes deeply into the second phase of God's mission. Second arrival. And only then is the mission over. Only after the second advent. The return of Jesus is actually the answer to all of those other longings. Send Jesus is what we should be praying if we want to advance our career or live on the marsh or see our children do amazing things. Send Jesus. I hope we see that in our passage here in a moment. Our passage is like Anzio. The prophet Zechariah gives us a pretty foreboding glimpse of what will happen, of what the Lord will do in anticipation of his coming judgment on the world. He invades his own city with an enemy army that he has gathered. In verse 2, we see that God says, I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The Lord gathers enemy armies into this supersized cosmic axis of evil. This army, and quite easily it seems, takes over the city of Jerusalem. Of course, because God lets it happen. But 
they also do so without Zechariah really even have, having to mention that there was any opposition. There's nothing the Israelites can do. The enemy lands with no resistance. Israelite houses are plundered. The spoils are divvied up right in front of the Israelites. Who knows if this is before or after the women are brutalized. Perhaps the men have been killed. That would be probably merciful. And all of this is happening, Zechariah tells us, because the Lord Jesus orchestrates it. Verse 1, a day is coming for the Lord. Not necessarily for us. It is certainly for us. But first, it's for him. Verse 2, for I will gather the nations against Jerusalem. He is the one doing all of this to his own city. But this also leads us to ask, why? Why in the world would God do this to his city, Jerusalem? And to answer that question, we really need to look at Isaiah 13. We're not going to this morning just for the sake of time. But Isaiah 13 and Zechariah 14 are eerily similar. The parallels in the language and the parallels in the imagery are virtually identical. But in Isaiah 13, the city is not Jerusalem. The city is Babylon. The city is the enemy God. God is judging his enemies. If you want a full, deep picture of Babylon, read Isaiah 13 and then read Revelation 17 and 18. You'll see Babylon pictured as a woman seducing kings and merchants, luring them in with wealth, pleasure, access. She gets themselves, she gets them and herself drunk on the blood of the saints as they're killing the church. And all the while she's acting as a prostitute in the service of Satan. That's Babylon. And here Zechariah is doing the same thing with his with, with God's own city Jerusalem in chapter 14. Borrows the same language, uses the same imagery to describe God's city. Jerusalem is Babylon at this point. The church of God, or most of it, has been infiltrated by these kings and merchants. And notice that the city is so worth plundering that they can't take the plunder out of the city. They divvy it up right there in front of all the Israelites. It's so much, they take it and they divvy it up right there. The city has moved so far away from God that it has to be purged. So God invades. Now, thankfully, it's not a complete and utter destruction. There is a remnant preserved for salvation. Only half of the city runs out into exile. They are banished. But at the end of verse 2, we're told that some people will not be cut off. They get saved by the warrior Lord coming from the east. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward the other half southward. You'll notice that this is the exact same route that Jesus takes in the triumphal entry. Mark 11, Matthew 21, you see Jesus coming from the east, 
He goes through Bethany and Bethpage, up the Mount of Olives. From there, he sends out his disciples into the city to scope it out, prepare, and get the donkey. But that is phase one. This is phase two. He is not, this time, on a beast of burden going to die. He is, this time, on a beast of war going to take back his city that has become Babylon. He is the rider on the white horse from Revelation 19. And as he moves into the city to fix everything and destroy those enemies of his that have destroyed his city, the Mount of Olives itself in the east opens up and becomes a refuge. It shelters people from the war. The Mount moves north and south. God's people who will not be cut off, they run out, we run out of the city while he rushes in, does all the fighting for us. When we are at Anzio, we're in Afghanistan, we're in the hospital, or worse, at the bedside of someone we love in the hospital, our first and our loudest prayer should be, send Jesus, end this for all your people. Send the Messiah who can fix it. But most of us are not at Anzio, right? We have concerns, stresses, but not necessarily grave or life or death concerns or stresses. We want, to, we want Jesus to return after next year's big trip, right? We've already made the deposits. They're non-refundable. Send Jesus then. But this next section actually answers that. All of those littler prayers and concerns are answered in verses 6 through 8. These verses show us why send Jesus is still the most appropriate prayer, even when we're doing well, even when we're enjoying the comforts of the holidays. Verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, as you could probably induce just from the English translation, these verses are not easy to translate. And scholars have struggled with them throughout uh, the last few decades. Uh, they've been the source of some debate about the exact translation not much debate about their meaning or their application to us. Uh, Zechariah in verse 6 gives this really weird weather phenomenon. Right? Did you notice it? It makes a statement that's somewhat contradictory. There is no light, but there is also no cold or frost. Even though there is no, there is no light source, the cold or frost aren't hurting people seems contradictory. And then verse 7 makes it even weirder. A unique day. But there is no day or night. And in verse 6 we're told that there is no light, but then in verse 7 we're told that there is light at evening time, even though there's no night. Right? So what in the world is happening? Well, the key to understanding all this weirdness is the first clause in verse 7. There shall be a unique day should read in Hebrew literally and there shall be a one day. Just reverse those two words. Read it this way. There shall be a day one. 
everything reverts back to day one. Send Jesus because creation and all the good things that we enjoy in her are reset back to day one. There is light, but not from a light source as we think about them today. The Hebrew text actually here literally reads, quote, there will be no light of splendor for they will congeal. You can understand why English translators didn't put that in the verse. They will congeal. First, splendor in the Hebrew. It's the same usage elsewhere in the Bible for moon if it's in the singular or sun and moon if it's in the plural. Here, it's in the plural. So, there will be no light of splendor means there will be no sun and moon. They will congeal. Congeal, same term for the thickening of a liquid. So what we're told is that these bodies of light that used to emanate for us no longer need to do so. They melt together. They go away. There is no need of that light source. And we all know exactly why. From Revelation, right? God himself is the light. He is sitting in the middle of New Jerusalem. He is the everlasting light source that illuminates everything and all of our experience. So although there is no longer a created light source, like there was at the creation, when evening comes, darkness is not there either. The real true light stays in the middle of the city. That light, God himself. Furthermore, clean, pure, living waters burst forth and flow from the city, from this bountiful spring in both directions, supplying water not just to the inhabitants of the city, but all of the people in the surrounding countryside. It flows west to the Mediterranean, east to the Dead Sea. It's not affected by seasons or fluctuations. It's constant. The environment and the people are fed by the waters, not polluted by them. There was a similarly important spring in Jerusalem, the Gihon Spring. It's just east of the city, but just west of the Mount of Olives. It's in between the city and the Mount of Olives in what was called the Kidron Valley. It made settlement in Jerusalem possible, but it was outside the city, outside the walls, very hard to protect, vulnerable to attack, and it also very quickly uh, became inadequate to meet the needs of growing Jerusalem. Jerusalem outgrew the spring. Even Hezekiah's tunnel, which was built to carry water from the spring under the walls into the city, even that uh, didn't cut it. It was inadequate. But here... That's all over. The spring, the living water, it flows and flows. The spring that is ushered in by the arrival of Jesus, this warrior king. He is the one who brings the water that truly quenches all of our thirst. Remember what he tells the woman at the well, another well, in John 4? He tells her, if you only knew who it was you were talking to right now, you would have asked him, or water, and he would give you life completely and abundantly. You would never thirst again. Two rivers, you and I are the woman at the well. If we only knew who it was that's talking to us right now, we would beg him to get here. Send Jesus. Give us this water. If we truly understand who he is and what he'll usher in at the second advent. The beauty and purity and diversity of the created order that we love to see 
experience, play in, is compounded by his next arrival, not diminished. Except, of course, without all the pestilence and the sand gnats and the heat. We know from other scriptures that creation will no longer fight us. The ground will no longer sting. Storms no longer rip or flood. The return on our work, total, 100%, return on our investment. Children jump rope with cobras, told in Isaiah 11. Lions snuggle up with lambs. Cows and bears joyriding with each other. Anything we could want or experience in nature, except the death or the pain, is made possible when Jesus arrives. Showing my daughter Yellowstone in person pales in comparison with the reset that Jesus brings on this unique day, day one. Now, the land is transformed around Jerusalem. We're told in verse 10 that the land around Jerusalem becomes a plain. That doesn't seem as beautiful as it as it might be. It actually doesn't have to be literal, and most translators or most commentators don't take it literally. It suggests that the land becomes this easily cultivated, fertile ground, fed and irrigated by the living waters. And God's city itself is sitting in the middle of the plain, towering over the rest of the land. The borders that Zechariah mentions here are basically the kingdom of Judah, the righteous remnant of God's people after the kingdom splits. The end of Solomon's reign. And the borders of the city are the same as those during Solomon's prime at the height of Jerusalem's wealth and power and status. The gates are restored. The towers are restored. The wine presses are full. All of the city's glory has returned in its wealth and its power, but also in its safety and in its holiness. Because he establishes himself as king, we are secure. Send Jesus. Fix our brokenness. Save us from our anzios. Send Jesus. Restore the creation. Keep us from killing it. Let us enjoy it fully. Send Jesus. Restore our wealth. Send Jesus. Mend my relationships. That's the only thing that can fully establish all of the big or the little desires that we have. If that mess sergeant back at Anzio paying attention to Jesus, he would know that Jesus can and will fix everything. The entire journey through the first advent was Jesus landing at Anzio. Was it not? His very birth was akin to landing at Anzio. In Revelation 12, John pictures Jesus' birth as if there is a dragon right there waiting to catch the baby and devour it as soon as he lands. He's born into a war. All of it orchestrated, all of it necessary from the assassination attempts on his life to the caravan to a foreign country to the temptations in the wilderness and elsewhere to the arrest and torture and crucifixion. All of it his own Anzio. And all the while that all of that is happening to him, he is finding people in their Anzios and fixing them. He gives the blind their sight, the deaf their hearing. He gives the lepers their fingers back. 
The lame get their legs back. He restored the minds of the demon-possessed. And he flat-out raised people from the dead. All of it culminating the fulfillment of his mission. Wildfires. We don't live in California. Hurricanes. Tyrants. Bankruptcy. Broken homes. Terrorism. Broken cars. Opioids. Layoffs. Assault. Racism. Misogyny. Lice. Bad grades. Big debt. No pastor. Market declines. However big or small or devastating or consequential our personal anzios are, none of them are lost on this warrior king. He's watching. He's scheming. He's setting all of it up for the day of his final victory. The psalmist puts it even more plainly than Zechariah. Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. You will glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Send Jesus. I'm in trouble. Most of us do call upon the warrior king the day of trouble, probably. But do we beg him to return? Set things right, even when things are great? We usually only want the short-term fix rather than the long-term restoration. But if we want things to be truly great, we would want the second advent. We would beg for it, like the persistent widow in Luke 18. The persistent widow, knocking on the door of the judge, constantly bugging him, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. But if you go back and read it, Jesus is teaching about the persistent widow sandwiched between Two different texts where he teaches about his own imminent return. The persistent widow is not asking for a raise. She is not asking for a European vacation. She is begging for the justice that comes in the second arrival. She is begging the judge, send Jesus, send Jesus, send Jesus. Christmas reminds us that while the first phase of the war is won, Messiah has come, and our sin and our death have been defeated. The second phase is yet to be, and it will be better. It will be so final and so perpetual that God's people, God's city, God's creation are reset to the perfection and goodness of day one. Whether you are in Anzio right now or you're on your back porch, in your hammock, with your favorite drink. Your prayer should still be, send Jesus. It's still the answer. It's still the fulfillment. Pray. Father, send Jesus. Jesus, come quickly. Holy Spirit, show us how to prepare and what to do in the meantime. Amen.